and welcome to Sign of the Crime. This is Remy Ramirez. This is Q McGrath. And this week we are talking about Sylvia Plath. Uh, And if you are a baby and you don't know who she is. (laughs) Oh, okay. This goes out to my friend, Sarah, who did not know who Sylvia Plath was when I said we were doing Sylvia Plath. Um, Love you and love everyone else who doesn't know who Sylvia Plath is. She's very just, famous. I had to take a moment because I was like, what well, yeah, we had to take we had to take a moment, though. What do you mean? You don't know who's uh, but actually it, I, it, the truth is that we are literature nerds. Um, we are so, literary nerds. And also in our 40s, we are, we are of a specific generation. Gwyneth Paltrow starred in a movie playing Sylvia Plath years ago. And, you know, that has well, come and gone. And when I was in high school, they taught Sylvia Plath. Oh, I don't know if they God. do that anymore. I but, mean, but she, I mean, she won, uh, she was, she was awarded posthumously the, um, not, not, not what I'm thinking of right now, uh, the Pulitzer for oh. Ariel in 1982. Oh, so it's that. possible that, you know, I mean, we, I was in high school in the mid nineties, so it's possible that it was on the heels of that, that she was put in. It was just part of the curriculum and now they've changed it because shit's different now. So I don't know. Um, so maybe they didn't learn Plath in the odds maybe they didn't teach plath dude which by the way fuck them rude mm-hmm. no they should well they were like well she's a woman so yeah you know. she's yeah. just a genius woman so she's she doesn't just matter. just an absolute master of her craft but yeah. it's not a big deal we can probably just like so teach one of those like flush that down the toilet chicken soup for the soul books <laughs> uh, in Texas, that's what they want to teach yeah no i want poems about death please and <laughs> And uh, being so mad at your father for dying. Oh my God, so angry. So, <laughs> so angry. mad about it. Um, okay, Sylvie Plath, she was a poet. I don't think we said that. If you don't know, she was a very she was famous a poet. poet. She died. She killed herself. Yeah. Well, now yeah. you're giving away the plot. So, okay. oh, come on. Well, so, well, so, but this, this, I was asking you earlier, I was like, is suicide a crime? Is it, is that by state? It, it I, I honestly don't know if it's by state. I do know that, um, that in many places it is considered a crime, which in my opinion is ridiculous. Like, you know, if someone, if someone manages to complete suicide, which is, I think how it's supposed to be referred to now uh you're not someone complete complete. suicide yeah because the idea behind it is that the person who is contemplating ending their life isn't in the correct frame of mind to make a like to commit something like it's not a Uh, um, it's not like you're committing murder right you know i mean it's it's a it's a it's part of a mental condition in which case you know it's like saying that they committed suicide is assigning blame i guess in a sense which that's that's why i never understood so was making it a crime so right um, that's why i'm like why is it a crime it really doesn't make any sense because if you manage to complete suicide you're clearly not going to be charged with anything and if you have attempted suicide then you are not in a place to be dealing with like a lawsuit so i I, you know like being people trying to be like well that was illegal so (laughs) please show up to court on the 14th like i don't i don't that doesn't feel right so i don't know what the point of that is it's not like that being made illegal is going to deter people um breaking the law seems relatively minor in terms of if you're considering ending your life so it's just it's it's very patriarchal and hilarious to me that they're like well yeah (laughs) it does it making suicide illegal feels very patriarchy Mm -hmm. yeah it feels very like we don't want to deal with the emotional aspect of this so instead pay a fine like yeah 
yeah, pay us money. Mm-hmm. I actually think that in some places it there are fines for that shit. So, Lord. and I, I, I'm like, y'all will try to get paid over anything. Anybody's pain is for worth real. a dollar as far as y'all are concerned. For real. Um, so there's well, that. I know that you told me it's 20 pages. Yeah. So we should get into this. Um, okay. Yeah, so especially because before we talk about Sylvia Plath, and of course, if we're going to talk about Sylvia Plath, we're going to have to talk about Ted Hughes, no matter. And I know right now, some of you are like smacking your, whatever you're listening to this to. I'm sorry. I have to talk about Ted Hughes. So we're going to talk about Sylvia Plath, but before we get into any of that, I've got to tell you a little bit about her parents, because I think they are important to understanding who she was, why she had the expectations of herself that she did mm-hmm. and why she was so crushed by the circumstances in which she found herself. Mm. So her father was Otto Plath and he was born in Germany in 1885, one of six kids, super normal for that time. At the age of 15, he immigrated to the U.S., surmising that the booming industrial revolution would require blacksmiths and his enterprising ass could fill that hole. He arrived in New York. He loved it. Did you say his enterprising ass? I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> because can you imagine being 15 and being like, you know what? <laughs> There's this other country with a language I don't speak with this booming commercial yeah. thing. And I'm just thinking maybe I could make that work for me. Like, yeah, what? what? Yeah. I know it was a different time, but still. But that's fucking insane. But that's crazy. When I was so, 15, I was like, I was like, can I go to a concert by myself? When I was 15, well, and it's so much worse now, as we know, <laughs> but like. Can I go to a concert by myself? And like make Olivia's out allowed boy? to walk home alone from the bus stop so long as she FaceTimes me the entire time. But like, but we were 15. I mean, at least we were home alone all the time at 15, but I wasn't traveling to other countries. So there's no, that. that's wild. Okay. Got yeah. it. Keep going. So he arrived in New York. He loved it. And instead of immediately heading to his grandparents' house in Wisconsin, as he was originally supposed to do, he just decided to hang out for a while. Yeah. Good call. Like, oh, <laughs> should I go to Wisconsin or should I stay in New York? <laughs> I like this guy. Oh, yeah. So he stayed in the city with his uncle. And while he was there, he just learned English within a year. Wow. Uh, as, and he developed this voracious appetite for higher learning, which also wasn't the plan. But his grandparents agreed to finance an education for him so long as he agreed to become a minister. Hmm. So he agrees and he moves in with his grandparents. And in the fall of 1906, he enrolls in Northwestern College, majoring in classical languages. He graduates in 1910 and he goes to attend the Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary School. But within weeks, he's like, nah. Uh, So he became disillusioned with the teachings and he dropped out of the seminary. And in response, John Plath, his grandfather, crossed out Otto's name from the family Bible and disowned him. Oh, shit. Hmm. Um, so autoplath, right. Autoplath moved to Seattle, Washington, where he taught German at the university height school while also taking advanced studies in German at the university of Washington in the following years, Plath taught and studied both German and biology after developing an interest in Darwin's theories in 1912, he earned a, a master's from the university of Washington after the U S declared war on Imperial Germany in May of 1917, Plath was investigated on suspicion of disloyalty and refusing to buy war bonds by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. But it turns out he was just poor. Um, he was like, I would love to buy some war bonds, but I'm broke. Uh, wow. And ultimately, well, you know, right? They're like, why aren't you buying our shit? He's yeah, like, they're like, like, can we arrest you for something? He's like, I'm an academic. Like, there's no money. And apparently there was never any money in academia. So oh, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, he was ultimately found to be loyal, although he was critical of his adopted country. Um, 
Beginning in 1922, Plath taught at Boston University, and in 1925, he earned an MS from Harvard. In 1928, he earned a doctorate degree in science, also from Harvard. Wow. So yeah, an academic. And there's no doubt that. that Sylvia inherited some of his scholastic prowess. Totally. But he was also looking to start a family. Um, he met and in 1912 married Lydia Clara Bartz, a friend's sister, but they were only together a couple of years before they drifted apart without legally ending the marriage because merit like divorce was not not great back in the early 1900s. Right. Totally. Uh, throughout his years of both education and teaching, Plath published his research on a range of such subjects, but mostly about bees, which were a passion of his. His doctoral dissertation was titled Bumblebees, Their Life History, Habits, and Economic Importance with a Detailed Account of the New England Species. Wait, say that again. Bumblebees, <laughs> Their Life History, Habits, and Economic Importance with a Detailed Account of the New England Species. And honestly, given the way shit's going right now, we might want to reread that. Honestly. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. He was like bees, though, you guys. Otto was ahead of his time. Yeah. For real. So in 1929, he met Aurelia Schober, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that right, S-C-H-O-B-E-R, while she was working on her master's degree in English and German. And in 1930, he asked her to go with him to an end of the year party at his at his colleague's country home. How did they meet, you ask? Good question. And I will give you one guess. If that guess is that she was his student and 21 <gasps> years younger... You would be correct. Oh, God damn it. Men were problematic forever. So Aurelia, but also, I also think that wasn't terribly unusual. It's not terribly unusual now. It wasn't terribly unusual then. So Aurelia accepted his invitation. And at the at the party, Otto basically tells her that he's like, I'm married, but I'm long separated. And I would be willing to get divorced to get divorced. You know, if I meet the right person who's interested in marriage, why like I fucking her. So um, men were made of different stuff in the 1930s. That's not how first dates have ever gone in my experience. God. So during their holiday break from teaching in 1931, Plath and Schober traveled to Reno, Nevada. And once there, Plath legally divorced Lydia Bartz without her participation or agreement. To be fair, the two had not seen each other in more than a decade on wow. January 4th, right? <laughs> I get it. Uh, on January 4th, 1932, Plath married Schober in Carson City, Nevada, not wasting any time. In October of that year, they had their first child, a daughter named Sylvia. Three years after that, they had a son named Warren. And not long afterwards, Otto began to develop some concerning physical symptoms. A good friend of his had recently died of lung cancer. And for reasons pretty much known only to Otto himself, he was convinced that he also had lung cancer, that it was untreatable, and that it would kill him. So he refused to address or treat his symptoms in any way. It turns out he did not have lung cancer, but he did have diabetes, and he let it go undiagnosed for so long that by the time he saw his doctor in 1940 for an infection on his foot, the diabetes was advanced, and his whole leg had to be amputated. Oh. But it was discovered the infection on his foot had become gang gangrenous. He died not long after that at the age of... This is 65. Is that right? That can't be right. It's got to be like 55. Um, because Okay, well, he was old. -er. Uh, and it's universally acknowledged that his death was crushing to his young daughter and deeply affected the remainder of her life. While Otto didn't talk about it while he was alive, it's also worth mentioning that mental illness ran in his family. Um, and his mother died in an insane asylum in 1919. Oh, oh shit. Uh, but also... 
they just kind of put women in insane asylums. Totally. So I, you know, it could have just been that she was like, I don't like what's happening in the world. And they were like, insane asylum for you. So we'll never know. Okay. For her part, Aurelia Plath Schober didn't have a mentally unstable bone in her body or in her family tree. She was born in Boston, one of three children raised in Winthrop, Massachusetts, and was what was raised in what she described as a peaceful, loving home. Must have been nice. Um, there were issues, of course. She was Austrian, and that didn't go over so well during World War I, and the Depression almost broke her family financially. But for the most part, things were good. Like her future husband, she was an intellect. She skipped the second grade, and as a child, she spent most of her free time reading. It's been suggested that Sylvia inherited her literary precociousness from her mother, but unlike Sylvia, the tightly bound role of women in Aurelia's time period prevented her from pursuing a career in literature, however much she wanted to, which isn't to say that they were gung-ho about women in Sylvia Plath's time period or our time period, Honestly, uh, having, you know, burgeoning and successful and flourishing academic careers, but like in Aurelia's time period, it was like, it, it was laughable. Yeah. It just wasn't going to happen. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, yeah. She was the salutorian of her 1924 class. Wait, she wa- Sylvia Plath was? No, no, no. No, Aurelia. Aurelia. Okay. Yeah. And though she wanted to attend Wellesley, she could not afford it. So she settled on getting, getting a liberal arts degree from Boston University. I mean, okay. If you consider that settling, it's pretty I mean, university. I was going to, honestly, such yeah. a good school. Um, she assumed that she would embark on a career as an English teacher, which was as far as most women of the time could dare to dream in terms of having a career in literature. She graduated from BU in 1928 as the class valedictorian. She then returned to BU to get her master's in English and German. And it was there that she met her professor, Otto Plath. As I previously mentioned, he asked her to a picnic for their first date on the last day of class, let her know he was interested in marrying her. And then naturally they separated for the summer, though they corresponded frequently. They began dating in earnest in the fall of 1930. And in 1932, as I said before, they traveled to Reno so that Otto could divorce his first wife. Divorce had the whiff of scandal about it at the time, so everything was done quickly, including their marriage, which occurred around the same time. Otto let Aurelia know that he wanted her to quit her studies and give up any aspirations of a career, which she did. Uh. Almost immediately gave birth to Sylvia, you know, nine months after they got married in October of that same year. Aurelia was disappointed at having to walk away from the dreams that she had worked so hard, for which she had worked so hard, but maybe not surprised as it was pretty standard for the time. Aurelia had expected her marriage to Otto to be kind of filled with scholastic musings and intellectual conversations around the dinner table, but that didn't pan out because in reality, Otto was a solitary figure when it came to his work as well as socially. And Aurelia was often left to her own devices and was quite lonely. She, you know, she had started dating Otto on the rebound from a bachelor professor who had broken her heart and her solace in marrying Otto was at least she would have a marriage that would provide intellectual stimulation. And when that didn't come to pass, she decided to publicly embrace the role of wife and mother while privately she seethed in her journals about the sacrifices she had made to keep the peace in her house and the injustice of that sacrifice. Oh, yeah. Okay, fun. And then Sylvia's like, hi, I'm here. <laughs> and her mother's like, let me tell you why the world is the worst. So, yeah. And then her dad's yeah. like, I'm going to be out with bees. Fuck off. <laughs> He's like, and then I'm going to die. Peace Great. out. Awesome. Um, so after her died, she's after he died, she stuck true to her resolve to carry forth as a mother first and everything else came second. She promised Sylvia she would never remarry and she was true to her word, but she did share a room with her daughter for much of Sylvia's childhood and adolescence. So 
make of that what you will, but I think Hmm. it's safe to say that that kind of close proximity created both an intimacy and a resentment that critics maintain Sylvia explored pretty brutally through the the mother character and her esteemed novel, The Bell Jar. I don't know if you haven't read it, you should, but you should, but not when you're upset. Um, <laughs> not if you're sad. Don't not do that. that. No. Uh, whether she knew she was doing it or not, Aurelia's choices created what her daughter perceived as a parochial conservative life that she expected her children to maintain. So, you know, these are the people little Sylvia, little child Sylvia grew up with. These were her influences. This was her background. And I think it's important to look at all this before we talk about Sylvia herself. And you'll see why later. So as I said, Sylvia's father died when she was eight. And that was probably the beginning of her being introduced to the reality that bad things can happen to good people. Uh, she was considered a bright and happy child with a real gift for literature and linguistics. She and her mother were very close, but there was an element of competition there, if you're to believe Aurelia's later tellings of their mother-daughter dynamic. Allegedly, Sylvia was quick to criticize her mother due to what she deemed her dowdiness, her convention, her traditionalism. But she also lashed out when her mother showed signs of breaking free from those restraints. When Sylvia was 15, Aurelia was offered a position as the dean of women at Northeastern, and Sylvia responded by yelling at her, For your self-aggrandizement, you would make us complete orphans. Another time. mm, Oh, it gets spicier. Another time when Aurelia revealed to her daughter that she had been asked to model in a beauty exposition as a young woman, Sylvia curtly told her standards must have been different in your day. Oh, (laughs) shit. Burn. (laughs) Good, healthy, direct communication. (laughs) Oh, burn, dude. Right. Uh, So I think it's probably safe to say that Sylvia was conflicted when it came to her mother. And, you know, it's normal for a young woman to go through a period of wanting to separate and individuate from her mom. But since she'd lost her father, I think there was probably a part of her who very much wanted to hang on to her mom as well. And and that probably created resentment. This is all armchair psychology, by the way. But that's how it looks to me. Right. Uh, It also didn't help that her brother, Warren, had been very sick as a child and required almost constant care by his mother, leaving Sylvia to fight for her father's attention and become his quote unquote pet the way she felt Warren was becoming her mother. So when Otto died, there was probably some very serious insecurity there and some awkwardness about how to move in the world, because while Otto was very fond of his daughter, he was not warm or loving. Mm. He treated his daughter very much as an intellectual equal, and he expected success from her. A quote from one of her biographies reads, Otto was most, most interested in Sylvia when she excelled. Mm. Oh, yeah. Sylvia nurtured her father through his disease and death, being both his comfort and his caretaker, and she took it upon herself to try and console her father through this dark time with small poems and notes to cheer him up as it became increasingly clear that Otto was not in good health. So child Sylvia is attached to the father figure that never expresses much approval unless she's demonstrating some kind of excellence. He doesn't allow much room for childlike behavior. And then before she has time to grow resentful of that and rebel, he dies. And she's left with a mother she doesn't have an intimate connection with, which granted, I think that changed over time, but you know, you, you can't go back and rewrite history. So anyway, she's left with this mom who's buttoned up all her ambitions to live this proper life and these unattainable, unattainable standards impressed upon her from her father. And then really from all sides. And she's unquestionably academically gifted. So this is basically an an anxiety sandwich recipe. You know, I mean, there was no way she was coming out of this without, some issues. So in the midst of what Otto believed was his battle with lung cancer, I'm going to get a little specific about what happened with him. He stubbed his toe and it turned black. 
Aurelia brought in a doctor who declared he did not have cancer, but severely advanced diabetes. And when he collapsed a few weeks later, it was determined that his whole leg was gangrenous and needed to come off. His leg was amputated while his family tried to boost his mood with encouragement and learning to walk in and how he could write about bees with one leg as well as two. He would have none of that and sank into a depression. So again, another family member with, with depression. A few weeks later, he died of an embolism in the lung. And I'm, I read a little bit about that. And it seems like part of why that happened is because he wouldn't get up and walk around. Mm. Um, he wasn't, or, and that I'm sure there's more to it than that, but he wasn't doing the self-care he needed to do to recuperate from the surgery. Mm. So it's kind of like he lost the will to live. Mm. Sylvia was destroyed by his death and felt responsible for the well-being of her mother following his demise. Also, he died in 1940. And those of you with even a minor interest in history will know that World War II was in the works for the United States at that time. And that was uncomfortable for people of Germanic heritage. So all in all, it was a rough time to be an eccentric, brilliant, eight-year-old German daddy's girl with no daddy and a mother you don't, file, you don't quite feel connected to. But she did have her first poem published in the Winston Herald the year her father died. She was the- eight? Mm-hmm. Good God. And over the next few years, she published multiple poems in various regional magazines and newspapers. At age 11, Sylvia began keeping a journal, and she also showed early promise as an artist, winning an award for her paintings from the Scholastic Art and Writing Awards in 1947. I didn't know she was a painter. Bitch had it all. Renaissance wow. woman. Wow. Even in her youth, Plath, Plath was ambitious and driven to succeed. It is reported she had an IQ of 160. <sighs> She graduated from Bradford Senior High in 1950, and following her graduation, she had her first national publication in the Christian Science Monitor. She attended Smith College, and she did exceptionally well. She also edited the Smith Review, which was the school's campus paper, and after her third year of college, she was awarded a coveted position as a guest editor at Mademoiselle Magazine, during which she spent a month in New York City. The experience was not exactly everything she'd hoped for, and many of the events that took place during that summer were later used as inspiration for the bell jar. So, yeah. She was furious at not being present at a meeting the editor had arranged with Welsh Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, a writer whom she loved, and according to one of her boyfriends, she loved him more than life itself. I'd be pissed too, honestly. I mean, (laughs) honestly, yeah. How dare you? She spent some time in the White Horse Tavern in the Chelsea Hotel for two days, hoping to meet Thomas, but he'd already left. I really think that shows dedication on her part, Uh, (laughs) but it didn't do her any good. A few weeks later, she slashed her legs to see if she had what she deemed the courage to kill herself. It, It was during this time that she was refused admission to a Harvard writing seminar which I looked into a little bit because what the fuck? What the Um, fuck? There are a number of theories around Sylvia's rejection, the least likely being that Aurelia hid her acceptance letter until it was too late, (gasps) um, as one uh, unsubstantiated report said, um, or that she was deemed overqualified for the course. That doesn't seem likely. Men don't usually consider women overqualified for anything, particularly in the 1920s. So the most likely reason for her rejection is that she sent her application in somewhere between June 8th and the 13th, and the course began June 6th. So it was probably already filled, followed by the very real possibility that the course professor, author Frank O'Connor, an Irish Republican, did not resonate with Plath's writing sample. Mm. I mean, let's be real. She was well ahead of her time. And it seems quite probable to me that a member of the old guard of literature would not have enjoyed her brazenly unconventional writing style. Just totally. Yeah. Yeah. These events left a young Sylvia emotionally shattered and following electroconvulsive therapy for her depression, 
Plath made her first medically document documented suicide attempt on August 24th, 1953 at the age of 20 by crawling under the front porch and taking her mother's sleeping pills. God, I forget that it was the 1950s. Jesus. Um, she survived this first suicide attempt later writing that she blissfully succumbed to the whirling blackness that I honestly believed was eternal oblivion. She spent the next six months in, psych in psychiatric care, receiving more electric and insulin shock treatment under the care of Dr. Ruth Boucher. Boucher, Boucher, B-E-U-S-C-H-E-R. Mm. Plath seemed to make a good recovery and she went back to college. In January 1955, she submitted her thesis, The Magic Mirror, a study of the double in two of Dostoevsky's novels. By the way, I've studied Dostoevsky. Yikes. Like I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't. <laughs> That's not what I would do. Nope. Um, would not touch no. that. Nope. <laughs> no. And in June, she graduated from Smith with an AB with a bachelor's degree, summa cum laude degree in English. She was a member of the Phi Beta Kappa Academic Honor Society, and she earned a Fulbright Scholar to study at Newnham College, one of the two women-only colleges of the University of Cambridge in England, where she continued actively writing poetry and publishing her work in the student newspaper. She spent her first year winter and spring holidays traveling around Europe. Mostly so, she, mostly so she could uh, nurse her broken heart after an on-again, off-again relationship with author Richard Sassoon, whom she dated from 1954 to 1956. Most people assume that Hughes was her first big sweeping love, but he was not. Richard Sassoon was actually her first romantic adult love. And even after meeting Ted Hughes, she went looking for Richard in Paris, following what ultimately became their final breakup. And if she had found him, there is a distinct possibility that everything I'm about to tell you might not have come to pass. Wow. But she didn't find him. He'd already left. And that is one that is when one Mr. Edward James Hughes stepped into the role of his lifetime as Mr. Sylvia Plath. So the two met on February 25th at a party filled with literature nerds in Cambridge, UK. She knew who he was. She had read his poetry and she liked it, but he did not know her. He did find her beautiful and fascinating. So despite the fact that he had a girlfriend, of he course, kissed, mm -hmm, he kissed her on the neck. Oh. She responded by biting him on the cheek to the point that blood was drawn, which I think ended up being an apt metaphor for their relationship. Hughes, who was super into astrology, later wrote a poem about the astrology on the day they met. And here is an excerpt from it. I had predicted disastrous expense, a planetary certainty, according to Prospero's book. Jupiter and the full moon conjunct opposed Venus, disastrous expense, according to that book, especially for me, especially for me, please fuck off, dude. The conjunction combust my natal sun, Venus pinned exact on my midheaven. He finished up with that day, the solar system married us, whether we knew it or not. So, I mean, he apparently knew what he was getting himself into. <laughs> um, and it was so cosmic. Mm, God, Jesus. I mean, this man's karma, both good and bad. I don't even know what to do with it. Um, what he was getting himself into was a mixed bag. Although I will say my man did it with his eyes open uh, and to great effect for his career. A lot is made of the fact that Sylvia quote unquote marked Ted with that bite. But as I previously mentioned, while Sylvia thought him handsome and talented, she was still mourning the lost love of Richard Sassoon. And I would bet that at least part of that bite had something to do with, I didn't say you could fucking touch me. That's purely mm. my conjecture but I'd put money on it. She had that kind of mm. bravado to me. I think that she was like, mm, I didn't say that was okay. Right. Uh, and it's and it, like in the movie, the Gwyneth Paltrow movie, it, she just seems so obsessed with him from the beginning, which is interesting to me because she wasn't. Um, mm. 
She traveled to Paris after she met Ted, as I said, looking for Richard, but he was not there. Um, so when she returned home and found that Ted had come calling for her, she was receptive because, you know, my girl's on the rebound. We've all been there. Uh, their romance moved quickly. And within a few months, they were married. <laughs> Don't get married on the rebound, kids. Um, Sylvia describes it this way. I'd read, I'd read some of Ted's poems in this magazine, and I was very impressed, and I wanted to meet him. I went to this little celebration, and that's actually where we met. Then we saw a great deal of each other. Ted came back to Cambridge, and suddenly we found ourselves getting married a few months later. Never a good description. Um, mm. We kept writing. We found ourselves getting married. It's like, right? how romantic. I know. We kept writing poems to each other. Then it just grew out of that, I guess, a feeling that we were both writing so much and having such a fine time doing it. We decided that this should keep on a sweet sentiment, a disastrous recipe for marriage. Um, so the couple married on June 6, 1956 at St. George the Martyr Holborn in London with Plath's mother in attendance. And they spent their honeymoon in Paris and Benidorm. Plath returned to Noonham in October to begin her second year. In June 1957, Plath and Hughes moved to the U.S., and from September, Plath taught at Smith College, her alma mater. She found it difficult to both teach and have enough time and energy to write, because it turns out adulting is a bitch. And then in the middle of 1958, the couple moved to Boston. Plath took a job as a receptionist in, wait for it, the psychiatric unit of Massachusetts General Hospital. Mm. And in the evening, she sat in on creative writing seminars given by the poet Robert Lowell, mm. which, by the way, is where she met Anne Sexton. I know. Can you mm. imagine being in fucking Robert Lowell's motherfucking workshop with Anne, with Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath? Jesus fucking Christ. I just feel like, oh, my God, I, just to be a fly on the wall. Like, yeah. I don't even need to be a student in the classroom. I just want to watch from the outside. I just would have cried the whole time. Mm. So both Lowell and Sexton encouraged Sylvia to write from personal experience, which she began to do, and she openly discussed her depression and suicidal ideation with both of them. Plath resumed psychoanalytic treatment in December, continuing to work with Dr. Boucher. In late 1959, Plath and Hughes traveled across Canada and the U.S., staying at the Yaddo Artist Colony in Saratoga Springs, New York. Plath later says it was here that she learned to be true to my own weirdness, quote unquote. But she remained anxious about writing in a confessional style from deeply personal and private material. The couple moved back to England in December 1959 and lived in London, uh, where if you go, it's like three Chalcot uh, or Calcot. I don't know how the English pronounce this shit. Every time I pronounce something, they're like, no, it's Thames. So uh, but where are they where it is now, there's an English heritage plaque record that recorded that was her residence, which is kind of neat. Cute. Their daughter, Frida, was born on April 1st, 1960, and in October, Plath published her first collection of poetry, The Colossus. She was extremely proud of this accomplishment. She considered it a real feat, but Colossus did not have major commercial success, which was crushing for her. I mean, not like poems. I was going to say, are poems having like, it yeah. was a different time, but I'm still like, huh, okay. I think yeah. just getting it published is a big, uh, okay, but all right. In the meantime, Sylvia was basically creating Ted Hughes' commercial career from scratch. He was not endowed with the same drive and dedication she was. So while he had some minor success as a poet prior to meeting Plath, she was the one who put his career in high gear. And he's been pretty open about that. She encouraged his writing, demanding he spend time on it, editing his favorite pieces, and then typing up his works and submitting them for major awards and publishing opportunities. In fact... Plath typed up Hughes' manuscript for his collection, Hawk, in the Rain, which went on to win a poetry competition run by the Poetry Center of the Young Men's and Young Women's Hebrew Association of New York. That's a fucking mouthful. But the first prize 
was publication by Harper. And oh, that garnered wow. Hughes widespread critical acclaim with the book's release in September of 1957 and resulted in him winning a Somerset Magam Award. So before meeting and marrying Sylvia Plath, Ted Hughes was a literal jack of all trades who just kind of drifted around Europe performing odd jobs while being hot, writing poetry and smoking cigarettes, aka being the exact kind of dude that me and most of the female Gen X population fell for in our early 20s. Um, <laughs> and by the end of the next year, he was well on his way to being one of the premier poets of the UK. I mean, I so. mean, thanks, Sylvia. Don't ever tell, don't tell me I never did anything for you. Energy is what I'm saying about that. So yeah. In February of 1961, Plath's second pregnancy ended in miscarriage. Several of her poems, including Par Parliament Hill Fields, addressed this personal tragedy. And in a letter to her therapist, Plath wrote that Hughes beat her two days before this miscarriage. <gasps> oh, my to God. To give full context to this account, Plath didn't make this accusation until after Hughes had left her for another woman. And by her own admission, which doesn't mean it isn't true, but her, her daughter Frida has said that as far as as far as she's concerned, that makes it suspect. But I'm like, well, I think homegirl has to probably justify some things. But anyway, um, what does that mean? What do you mean? Well, her daughter is like, I think that she said that because dad left her for another woman and not because it was true. Well, okay. But why would she say that? Because Ted Hughes is her dad. And so she doesn't want to. The okay. only living parent she has. So. Okay. Okay. And she doesn't, I mean, she, her mom died when she was like, you know, two so right okay um but by her own admission he did it because she was destroying the only copy of a good bit of his most recent writings oh why was she destroying the only copy of his writings after painstakingly nurturing his career in the words of elise myers that's a great question i'd love to tell you she was ripping up his shit because he was fucking around on her or at least he believed she was and quite frankly we now know in posterity that he was so Side note, since they were married within four months of meeting each other, many probably significant details about their personal lives had not yet been brought up in their conversations. For his part, he neglected to mention that he was a serial philanderer, and she had overlooked mentioning that she was a serious depressive with at least one suicide attempt in her fairly recent past. So mm -hmm. I don't think either of them saw what was coming. Like he didn't, she didn't realize she was about to get probably cheated on a lot, and he didn't realize that she was about to be a lot. So right. like, there were surprises all around as this marriage progressed. Um, in August, she finished her semi-autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar. And immediately afterwards, the family moved to Court Green in the small market town of North Totten in Devon. Nicholas, her second child, was born in January of 1962. And in mid-1962, Plath and Hughes began to keep bees, which would go on to be the subject of many Plath poems. But here it comes. In 1961, the couple rented their flat at Chalcott Square, to Ossia and David Wevel. Hughes was immediately struck with the beautiful Ossia as she was with him. Have you seen pictures of her? She was stunning. 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 In May of 1962, Ossia and her third husband, the Canadian poet David Wevel, were invited to spend a weekend with Plath and Hughes in their new home in Devon. Hughes later wrote in a poem that it was during that weekend visit that the dreamer in me fell in love with her. <laughs> Sylvia. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> God, Bro, it sounded gross. it sounded like like when you are, when you're listening to like a morning radio show and they have like a fart noise or something that they do. Like I, you know, it wasn't a fart, but I fart on that. No, I fart on that. No, but it's I know it was it no, it was a barf noise, but it just sounded like, 
<laughs> it sounded like professional is what I'm saying. The dreamer and me fall in love with you. <laughs> no, <laughs> I reject that. Um, Sylvia, by this time, aware of his proclivity for adultery. And after catching the two of them in what looked to be a deep and intimate conversation over the dishes. And there's there's some shit out there that says she saw them kiss knew immediately what was up and asked David to leave and take his wife with him, which he did, but it was too late. Six weeks later, Hughes met Wevel alone for the first time when he came to London for a meeting at the BBC. Plath was quick to discover this affair and she was furious. She ordered him out and he couldn't have been any happier to go. The following day, he knocked on the Wevel's door carrying four bottles of champagne. And over the next couple of months, he traveled back and forth between the two women. Classic. Wait, 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 wait. And she's still with David Wevel. What the fuck? Yeah, it's not great. In mid-September, Hughes and Plath took a holiday in Ireland. Oh, this is going to make you so mad. And on the fourth day, he up and disappeared. Sylvia didn't know for sure where he went, but she had an idea. And it was later discovered that when Hughes embarked on this trip, he already had a ticket to London to meet Wevel. And the two of them headed for, they headed south for a 10-day Spanish holiday in the middle of the vacation he'd taken with Sylvia. Oh, I just fucking can't. Yeah. He and Plath had spent their month, their honeymoon in Spain and she didn't like it, but the experience with his new love was smooth and easy and delightful, oh. providing them both with a creative boost, a film script they had started writing together. <gasps> yeah. Oh, Isn't oh my that God. Precious and not gross at all. My- um, Scorpio is like, absolutely fucking not on every setting fire to that script. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Setting fire to everything. Um, Uh, Yeah. Literally everything, everything. So when he gets back, Sylvia is extremely angry and he demands, and she demands that he give up, he give up this new lover and he refuses. And he left for London permanently. Two months later, Plath moved to London as well, just in time for Hughes and Webble to decide that they no longer have to keep this affair under wraps. They were seen everywhere, so much so that people mistakenly thought that they were actually living together, which they were not, at least not yet. I just want to say, I just want to go on record as saying any crime that is committed because of a man cheating on you is okay. You had it coming. (laughs) Yeah. He had it coming. Yeah, I'm sorry, but 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 you, if you're gonna cheat on me, you are inviting every bad fucking thing that you get. Every every bad thing I'm gonna do to you. I can't think of a bad thing. Are you listening, Michael? <laughs> I want to be clear. There's, there's nothing no confusion <laughs> that, that that like wouldn't be justified. No, absolutely not. It reminds me of that scene in um, Sex in the City where she's posting those that were like, she's like this man, like his picture. She's like, this man is a cheater, you know? <laughs> oh, Samantha. Yeah. And the cops like, ma'am, you can't do that. She was like, this man told me he loved me. And then he ate another woman's pussy. And she's like, <laughs> carry on. <laughs> and yeah, she just tosses hundreds of them outside his work. And I'm like, yes, yes, yes. that's, that's some Scorpio and Venus shit right there. Yeah. But Sylvia, um, she's not having that reaction. She is sinking deeper and deeper into a familiar depression with ha- that has a new low. So she's a jilted lover on the brink of a painful divorce with two very young children living in London during one of the coldest winters on record without any family and not many friends, while her adulterous husband carries on with his new partner in public with absolutely zero consequence or accountability. And I'm just going to say, London sucks. Like, I know it's great and whatever, but it's so fucking depressing. I went there in the summer and I was like, boo, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's basically the San Francisco of, it's like another San Francisco. Well, and that's why you hate it. 
because you don't like it cold. No, was, my point being is if you're depressed, don't fucking go to London. Sure. I can get behind that. Yeah, I, I could see why some people it would be the worst place to be. Um, and it, it didn't help. It didn't help Sylvia out any. The only upside to the situation for Sylvia was the creative fires stoked by her anger and her grief, which turned out to be monumental. It was during these it was like four or five months that she wrote most of the poems that ended up in her timeless piece, Ariel, most often at her kitchen table in the early morning hours before her children woke. Those who've read them know that she absolutely plundered her personal life for these works to magnificent effect. While she was definitely spiraling, she did not have the appearance of a person in a major depressive episode, and she continued to make efforts to write the ship that she knew from experience was sinking. In June 1962, Plath had been in a car accident when she drove her car off the road, which she describes as one of many suicide attempts. Following that incident, she'd begun making earnest efforts to attend to her mental health. In January of 1963, Plath spoke with John Horder, her general practitioner and a close friend who lived near her, describing the current depressive episode she was experiencing and had been ongoing for six or seven months, a.k.a. the time period of Hugh's affair with Ossia. While for most of that time she had been able to continue working, she recognized that her depression had worsened and become severe, quote unquote, marked by constant agitation, suicidal thoughts, and the inability to cope with daily life. I mean, we just call that being in our 20s around these parts, but yeah. Oh, mental so, health is so real, though. That's so fucked up. So real. Um, Plath struggled with insomnia, taking medication at night to, to get to sleep, and she frequently woke up early, which is honestly why we have Ariel. She lost 20 pounds, but she continued to take care of her physical appearance, and she did not outwardly speak of feeling a sense of guilt or unworthiness. Horder prescribed her an M MOA antidepressant a few days before her suicide, knowing that she was at risk and alone with two young children. He claims he visited her daily and made repeated efforts to have her admitted to a hospital. And when that failed, he arranged for a live-in nurse. It has been argued that because antidepressants may take up to three weeks to take effect, her prescription from Horder would not have taken effect fully mm. by the time she died. And it's worth noting that she was still in contact with Dr. Ruth Schrober in the U S and that she had asked the good doctor if she should return home where she had support. And the doctor advised her to stay, which turned and out no, to be and not great advice. Yeah. Support and sunlight and fucking vitamin D get out of London, dude. And away from where your fucking philandering husband is like openly fucking this other woman. Yeah. So. And everyone's like, Oh, how cute. Mm. This new mm. couple bootstraps yeah just you'll be fine so on february 11th 1963 the live-in nurse arrived at plath's home to help with the kids and discovered she could not get into the flat a local workman helped her gain entry where they both found they both found plath dead in the kitchen her head in the oven and the gas turned all the way up she had carefully sealed the doors between her kitchen and her sleeping children's bedrooms stuffing the openings with wet towels and tape even opening their windows up in the middle of the, in the middle of this terrible winter to ensure they would not be harmed by the gas that she exposed herself to Aww. an autopsy showed that there were bruises on her head indicating at some point she may have started up and banged her head on the top of the stove possibly a twitch of some kind maybe she hurt her children maybe she had a moment of indecision we'll never know plath's intentions have been debated that morning, she asked her downstairs neighbor, Trevor Thomas, what time he would be leaving, and she left a note reading, call Dr. Horder, including the doctor's phone number. There has been some conjecture that Plath turned on the gas at a time when Thomas would have been able to see the note, but the escaping gas had seeped downstairs and knocked Thomas out while he slept. Oh. So if that was part of her plan, it went terribly wrong. However, in her biography, Giving Up the Last Days of Sylvia Plath, 
Plath's best friend, Jillian Becker, wrote, according to Mr. Goodchild, a police officer attached to the coroner's office, Plath had thrust her head far into the gas oven and had really meant to die. Horder also believed that Plath's intentions were obvious. He stated that no one who saw the care with which the kitchen was prepared could have interpreted her action as anything but an irrational compulsion. Plath had described the quality of her despair as owl's talons clenching my heart. Mm. For his part, Ted Hughes claimed to be devastated. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, that's the end of my life. The rest is posthumous. Maybe he never intended to make this split permanent, and he had always counted on Sylvia taking him back at some point. We don't know exactly what took Sylvia past the precipice of depression and suicide, although unarguably she lived her whole life hovering somewhere between those two points. But there is some rumor rumor that Sylvia had just been told that Osseo Wevel was pregnant. And there is no doubt that information would have been ruinous to her. And as it turns out, Asia was pregnant. Mm. Two days after Sylvia's death, a friend came to Sylvia's flat to play a condolence call and found Asia in Sylvia's bed. (gasps) The disrespect. Uh, (gasps) A month later, Asia would have an abortion. Following Sylvia's death. Wait, just in the bed? Resting. She was resting. Can you fucking rest in your own bed? No. Um, so, okay. I'm just going to, I'm just going to tell you some things now. Um, following Sylvia's death, Asia moved in with Ted and his children in the flat where Sylvia had killed herself. Oh my God. <laughs> and then they spent the summer vacation with Hugh's parents in Yorkshire. In September, 1963, Hughes returned with his children to Devon, leaving Asia alone in the flat where Sylvia died, which is just uncomfortably ironic. Um, Hughes wanted some time to himself. And Asia had doubts about his commitment to her. I know, I know. So David, the husband Asia had essentially abandoned, returned to Spain and returned from Spain and joined Asia in Plath's death flat. No. Yes. Ted used this time to go through and reorganize the manuscript Sylvia had left out at her writing desk for publication the morning she died. Despite his obvious and uncomfortable involvement in her death, they were still married when she died, and that made him her next of kin. So her property, including intellectual property, became his. Became Ted Hughes. Mm -hmm. Ted wasn't a great husband, but he knew quality writing when he saw it, and he was very aware that the poetry Sylvia had left behind was timeless and incomparable. Improbably, it took him a few tries to find a publisher for the work he had chosen to call Ariel. But once he did, the work was an instant success, which both ensured... I, I, I just, I can't, I cannot imagine being a fucking sure on the side of my face, <laughs> heaving breaths, heaving flames, yeah. reading Ariel and being like, mm, pass. Like, what are you? Stu- are you so stupid? Are you, are you, are you the worst and dumbest person alive? Yes. What are you talking Next about? Next question. <laughs> yes. Holy shit. That is correct. Um, but as I said, the work was instantly successful, which ensured his status as the widow of the, of the great Sylvia Plath, but also cemented his status as the villain of her tragic demise. Totally. He probably knew was going to happen. Well, he is, uh, was, he is, but like, like I said, we had this conversation, like she left that shit out. She knew they were married. She knew that he was going to publish it. She knew that. Yeah, there was he knew it was going to be successful. It was a fuck you. It was a big fuck you. Yeah, it was a fuck you. And it was a gangster fuck you with that because <laughs> she knew she was like, oh, guess who's going to be famous now, bitch? 
Guess what? And guess who's going to be the dude that everybody thinks killed me, whether or not that's correct. That is what everybody's going to think. Meanwhile, his affair with Asya continued. And on March 3rd, 1965, she gave birth to a daughter she called Shura. It is assumed that the child was Ted's, although Asya herself didn't know for sure and admitted and admitted as much. Ten months later, Wevel left David and she moved with Ted to Ireland. That was a happy time for them both. And Ted was delighted and relieved to see that his children seemed to love what he referred to at that time as their half-sister, although he never really seemed to take ownership in that way, for sure. Despite his declaration that his life was over, Hughes found himself to be creatively fertile, and he began writing Crow, his work that explored the death of his wife. Wevel was an amazing partner to Ted during this time, as she was artistically inclined and supportive, but she had no great ambition herself and was more than content to make them the, him the center of all her hopes and dreams while she kept house and tended to their children. Originally, they planned to stay in Ireland for five years, but after a few months, they had to return to Devon because Hughes's mother had fallen ill. His parents did not approve of his scandalous relationship with Asya, who they found arrogant, and they were very much afraid that his association with her had ruined his reputation with, you know, good reason. It I mean, up. that is correct. Yes. Yep. Um, Hugh's father steadfastly, steadfastly ignored Wevel, never speaking to her, not once, refusing to sit at a table with her, Whoa. and even averted his eyes when she put a plate of food in front of him. Oh my God, damn, that is petty. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the cherry on the Sunday was that in any discussion between Wevel and his parents, Ted invariably sided with his parents. Mm-hmm. No, so mm-mm. no, no. Couldn't, couldn't handle that. Couldn't, couldn't do that. <laughs> no, my, my claws came out all the way uh, like a cat with a big fat <laughs> scratch in your face. <laughs> Edith Hughes could not seem to heal in Ossia's presence. So Hughes devised a plan where an Ossia and Shura would return to London and stay there until Edith was well enough to return to Yorkshire. There were trips to see each other during this time period, so they weren't completely separate, and they continued to look for a home together. But Hughes kept finding fault with everything they looked at. Also, I I know it's going to shock you to your core when I tell you that he's having affairs again, possibly because he's fraught with guilt over Sylvia's death and possibly because that's just what he did. Just because Uh, he likes to put his dick all over the place. Turns out. Turns um, out. Finally dawns on Asia that her association to the death of his wife had forever tainted her in Ted's eyes and he's not going to marry her. He's like, here's the thing. When I'm married to Sylvia Plath, I put my dick everywhere. When I am responsible for her depression and death, I put my dick everywhere. When I'm happily remarried, I put my dick everywhere. I just put my dick everywhere. I just like to put my dick in different places. Just whatever, any available. Yeah, just... So they parted ways in 1968 with Asya hoping for a reconciliation that did not materialize. She was devastated by this. Lots of devastation around Ted Hughes. And so in March of 1969, she dragged a mattress into her kitchen, sealed up the room's windows and doors, dissolved some sleeping pills into a cup of water that she gave to her daughter after taking a few herself and chasing with a glass of whiskey. And then she curled up on the mattress with little Shura after turning the gas on. <gasps> Wait, she tried. Wait, did she kill the daughter? She and her child were both found dead the next <gasps> day by the nanny. No. So she um, wrote a note to her father saying that after Ted Hughes, there could never be another man and that she didn't think she was like, Ted was never kind to Shura is what she said. She didn't think that, that Ted would take 
Shura on as his daughter. She was four. She was too old to be adopted out. There was no one who would take her and her parents were too old. What about her fucking... Okay, sorry, keep going. I, honestly, her ex-fucking husband David, I was gonna probably say. would have taken him. But I, I, if I'm being honest, I think she probably just didn't, didn't want to go alone. You know? Yeah, yeah, that was a fucking coward's way out. Never kill a child. How dare? Yeah. Um, ironically, Ted would go on to marry one of the women he was cheating on her with, Carol Orchard, in 1970, and that marriage lasted. He stayed with her until his death in 98. Following Sylvia Plath's death, Ted had briefly enjoyed a moment as a sympathetic, tragic figure until people began to catch wind of the circumstances surrounding her death and the fact that Ted Hughes ain't nothing but a hound dog. <laughs> So that's when the winds begin to turn against him. Ossia and Shura's death, so similar to Plath's, really didn't do much to create favorable tides for him either. So he went about making every attempt to erase her from his life. He never mentioned her in interviews, wouldn't allow her to be written about in biographies, and told everyone that he raised the children himself with the help of family and nannies between 1963 and his marriage to Carol in 1970. And he was mostly successful at keeping her name out of his life, to be honest. And we wouldn't have the details of her life in death without some serious investigative work by some reporters in the wow. 90s oh wow yeah throughout all of this sylvia plath her work and her death uh, you know between like 1963 to the 70s we're going to the 80s it's becoming more and more influential around the world which most certainly had to have been difficult for the man who thought he would be the person whose shadow she would forever live in and instead home bitch pulled out a big old uno reverse and got the last lap um so hughes has come under fire many times for his choices involving sylvia's estate including the fact that he destroyed her most recent journal after she died i can't imagine why i'm sure it said some really nice things in him about him in it um the 19 uh, the 1970s and the 1980s didn't get any kinder to ted hughes as the feminist movement began to take flight and finally in the 1980s radical feminist poet Robin Morgan published the poem Arraignment, in which she openly accused Hughes of the battery and murder of Plath. Her book, Monster, included a piece in which a gang of Plath aficionados are imagined castrating Hughes, stuffing his penis into his mouth, and then blowing out his brains. <laughs> Hughes threatened to sue Morgan, and the book was withdrawn by the publisher Random House, although it remained in circulation among feminists. I saw it in college. A professor had a copy. It's amazing. Uh, wow. Sylvia Plath was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for her work, Ariel, in 1982, 19 years after her death. And in 1984, Ted Hughes was appointed Poet Laureate uh, after, and this is one of my favorite bits of literature trivia, the inimitable and eminent poet Philip Larkin turned the appointment down, proving once again that Ted Hughes was destined to come in second in all things that matter. Wow. Ted Hughes passed in 1998 of a heart attack while being treated for colon cancer because apparently he remained full of shit until he died. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. Um, I was going to say <laughs> low hanging fruit, but I approved. But I had to. So tragically, Nicholas Hughes, Sylvia's son, was also beset by the depression that plagued his mother. And in 2009, he hung himself at his workshop in Alaska. Uh, Frida Hughes is still with us and she is delightfully eccentric. She paints, writes, and collects owls. And that is the story of Sylvia Plath. Wow. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Yeah. Did I tell you some shit you didn't know? Yeah, you did. And I, so, so when I was doing my grad program at UT in creative writing, David Webel was my professor. He was oh my God, the you told me that. leader of my poetry workshop. 
And I knew, I knew some of the story. I, I knew some of the background of Sylvia Plath, but I, I didn't know about us yet. Like I didn't really know that chapter of it. And when I got to school, you know, of course there was a lot of buzz when I said that I was in David Wevel's workshop, they were like, well, and I, you know, I'm a massive Plath fanatic. And so I was sort of like, when everyone was kind of like, well, you know, the history. And I was like, no, what history? I, so I learned some stuff then, but I did not know that Asia put her baby to sleep and killed them both. I did not know that piece. So yeah, she did. Okay. Well, fuck her and fuck Ted Hughes. Are you ready to get into this astrology? Cause it's fucking mind blowing. I figure it's going to be weird. Okay. Let's look at it. We've never talked about this on here, but there's a thing in astrology around the 29th degree. You and I have talked about it. It's also called the anoretic degree. When you see a planet or placement in a chart at 29 degrees, it points to a kind of crisis in a person's life, a sense of urgency or like a very difficult time making decisions around something. So let's start here. Plath had her ascending at 29 degrees of Aquarius, just right there before Pisces, which is so, yeah, which is so interesting because her North node is in Pisces. So it's as if her soul really wanted to get into Pisces territory, but it was still hanging on to that Aquarius edge for better or worse. Oh, and just a side note, guys, we had a birth time. So, oh yeah. So we've got houses, we've got all the, she got the whole thing. The ascending represents how you're viewed by the outside world. And it also represents the physical appearance, the physical self. So when a person's ascending is at 29 degrees, there's often a crisis around suicidality in their life. And it manifests as this indecision around whether they should exist as their physical self or not. It's this question around, do I even want to be on this physical plane? And of course, for Plath, there was this vacillating, right, with her suicidality. It wasn't like she just did it once and that was it. She attempted it multiple times before she completed suicide. Another piece of this is that her suicide became a part of her identity after her death, right? It became a central part of how she was seen by the public. Oh, yes, absolutely. Which is also what ascending signs represent. And in fact, you know, just like you sort of, uh, alluded to, I don't think you can talk about Sylvia Plath without people immediately thinking about her suicide, but of course that's only a small part of the story. Her ascending is square to Chiron. She has Chiron in Taurus in the fourth house. Chiron and Taurus points to loss and the fourth house is the house of home, family, and childhood. So this is a loss in the family during childhood, which of course is her dad. God, sometimes it's so on point. It's just so on the nose. That loss, because it's square to the ascending, is a central part of this vacillating, this indecision around whether or not she should even be alive. As we know, she became suicidal after her father's death. So that's all very much in the stars. Her fame is also in the stars. She has Mars and Leo, Mars represents our ambition, how we she take Mars action. and Leo. Yeah. She was like, give that she was funny. The fucking spotlight. Oh yeah. I bet she was. Yeah. And, and she probably had a lot of, um, 
you know, Leo is fun, right? And it's yeah. like, it's upbeat. So well, I did tell you the reason that her, um, that her best friend didn't like that movie made about her was because she said it was joyless. And that- right. Leo is all about the spotlight. Leo wants to be seen and appreciated and praised. So her ambition was driving her toward fame, right? Not just that, but she also had both Mercury and the sun in Scorpio in the 10th house. Ooh. The, yes. Ooh. The 10th house is the Mercury house. Mercury in Scorpio. I have Mercury in Scorpio. Interesting. <laughs> and that is why I'm a genius like Clef. No. <laughs> um, no, but okay. So the 10th house is a house of career and legacy and can tell us about fame in a person's life, right? You typically look to the 10th house to see if someone's going to get famous. So looking at her 10th house, she has Mercury there at 21 degrees. Mercury rules communication, words, publishing. So that points to her being famous for her words and publishing projects. And the sun rules your public image. So when you have the sun in the 10th house, you're looking at someone whose identity is itself a legacy and whose career will involve projecting their image to the public. Also, we're in Scorpio here in the 10th house. Scorpio is ruled by Pluto, which is super powerful and can absolutely create fame in a person's life. And that's because Scorpio fixates more than any other sign. Once Scorpio puts its attention on something, good fucking luck prying it away, which is also why Scorpio can fall victim to addiction, stalking, all these kinds of things. But when you have... When you have Scorpio in the 10th house, you're looking at someone who's obsessed with and maybe even addicted to their career, someone who's completely submerged in their work, which, by the way, is made even stronger because she has Pluto in the sixth house, which is the house of everyday work. So this is a lot of obsession energy around her work and career. But there's another piece here. Having Scorpio in the 10th house of career And having Pluto in the sixth house of work and then having Mercury in the 10th house, this is now someone who is thinking and writing Mercury about the afterworld, death and rebirth, Scorpio and Pluto. Again, Pluto is the god of Hades, the underworld. Not just that, but because we also have the sun here in the 10th house, the sun is the self, right? It's our essence, our identity as an individual. So this is someone who isn't just thinking and writing about death. This is someone who's thinking and writing about their own death, the death of the self, and who is made famous from doing just that. Now- That happened. Yeah. (laughs) That checks out. What's interesting is that Mercury in Scorpio in the 10th house- is opposing Chiron in Taurus in the fourth house, which is squaring her ascending at 29 degrees of Aquarius. So we have a T-square, in other words. Mercury and Scorpio in the 10th house, opposite Chiron and Taurus in the fourth house, and each of those is 90 degrees from her ascending at 29 degrees in the first house. So there's this tension around the loss of her father, and this, and that's, you know... That's happening in the fourth house that we talked about Mm -hmm. and this obsession with a writing career that's kind of focused on death. Those are the two that are opposing and it ultimately results in this ongoing suicidal ideation, AKA her rising at 29 degrees of Aquarius. Mm -hmm. So 
I'm starting there. This is just the beginning, but there's a lot more going on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk through a lot of individual placements and then kind of explain how they're all working together in her chart. So let's start with Saturn in the 12th house. The 12th house is often thought of as the house of trauma of the subconscious of spirituality. And all of that is true. But in the symbolism of astrology, the 12th house is your final house before you release into a new cycle. That new cycle being Aries in the first house. Neptune is the co-ruler of the 12th house and Neptune carries the energy of lack of clarity, confusion, and murkiness. Like you're submerged underwater and you're drowning, which makes sense because Neptune is the God of the ocean. So all of this is related. This murkiness and loss of clarity has an additional meaning beyond just being in the ocean and like not knowing up from down. It's a lack of clarity that happens because the 12th house is the place where you essentially start dissolving out of the material world so that you can be reborn in a new physical body via the first house. Another way of thinking of the 12th house is that this is where endings and deaths can occur, even though we normally think of the eighth house as the house of death and rebirth. I will say the 12th house can be a place of healing if you make that choice but it's not a place of rebirth in the way that the eighth house can be and that the first house is. Within the reincarnation cycle, if you're looking at the symbolism of astrology, the 12th house represents the death aspect. This is your last stop before you become completely immaterial, essentially die in other words, Mm -hmm. and are reincarnated through Aries in the first house. So with that in mind, Plath has Saturn here in the 12th house. It says two things to me. One, Saturn represents the father. So there is the death of the father happening that is, by the way, super traumatic for her because, again, the 12th house is the house of trauma and mental health. The other thing it tells me is that she applies a sense of discipline and order to her trauma. This is someone who has schedules and routines and a work ethic around her struggles with mental health. And that's, Hmm. it's, we, maybe you don't, that doesn't make sense at first, but it's more the case when you look at the fact that she has Pluto in the sixth house of work and it's opposing this Saturn in the 12th house. So Pluto is powerful, obsessive, and concerned with death. And it's right there in her house of work. So it's making her obsessed with her work. And that energy is directly connected to Saturn in the 12th house. So now we have obsession with work, the death of the father, and a sense of discipline around trauma, and they're all coming together. So what does that look like? It looks like someone who in their work is obsessive about the trauma of losing their father and the mental health repercussions of that loss of the subconscious sphere, right? right? The subconscious landscape, exploring that in their work. And someone who in their work, uh, is like delving into the trauma in this disciplined way, which as you talked about, anyone, anyone who writes can tell you the editing process is so meticulous. It requires so much discipline. And so just imagine like Sylvia Plath getting up at the fucking crack of dawn to explore her trauma and subconscious landscape 
you know, for three hours before her children wake up. Like that's the kind of Saturn work ethic that's being applied to her trauma. Does that make sense? Oh, that does make sense. I'm a Capricorn. I understood all that completely before you explained it, but there are others out there who are not Capricorns. So it's good you did. Okay. Let's turn to her eighth house because she has a stellium here. The eighth house is ruled by Scorpio and is the house of death, rebirth, and deep, painful struggles. Sexuality falls here. Other people's resources like uh, loans and stuff. We don't care about that stuff. In this, we care about the, about the death rebirth stuff. Cause we're fucking talking about Sylvia Plath in this house. She has Venus at 23 degrees, the South node at 16 degrees, Jupiter at 16 degrees and Neptune at nine degrees. This is so fucking interesting because last episode when we did Candy Montgomery, she also had Neptune conjunct South node, but it was an exact conjunction. Here we have an exact conjunction between the South node and Jupiter, both at 16 degrees. And that conjunction is conjunct Neptune on one side and then Venus on the other side. It's seven degrees away from each of those planets. Mm. Okay. So let's look first at this central conjunction with South node and Jupiter. As we know, Jupiter is basically a loudspeaker for whatever it gets next to. It doesn't judge. So, you know, you can put it next to Venus and you will be so loved and lavish and adored, you know, probably rich, or you can put it next to Pluto and you will obsess and get all vengeful and murdery, right? Jupiter is an equal opportunist. Whatever it gets next to you, it will amplify. The South node represents our past karma, our past lives, past lessons, what we're meant to integrate thoughtfully into this lifetime, but not move toward. The North node is what we're meant to discover and pursue in this life. If what, we, what is her North node? Her North node is Pisces. If we pursue the energy of the South node, that's where we'll create problems for ourselves. And that is especially the case when you have Jupiter conjunct the South node, because that's amplifying the karmic repercussions of the South node, right? Now, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, it's like fucking, yeah. South note up in your shit. Yeah. Bright lights, marquee, you know, it's happening. One really important thing about this conjunction, it shows us that there can be serious losses in the house where Jupiter is located and the houses that Jupiter oversees because, okay. Okay. This is a, okay. I don't think we've gone this far into stuff before. So I'm going to try to explain this as best I can because Jupiter is the planetary ruler of Sagittarius, right? Jupiter rules Sagittarius and the co-ruler of Pisces. Did you know that? Jupiter is the co-ruler of Pisces. I didn't know there could be co-rulers. Oh yeah, because Saturn and Uranus uh, both co-rule Aquarius and Jupiter and Neptune co-rule Pisces. So yeah. Interesting your little astrological hot tip of the week. So, so because of that, that means we're talking about the 12th house, right? That's the house Pisces oversees and the ninth house, the house Sagittarius oversees plus the eighth house where Jupiter is located in past chart. That means we're looking at critical losses in all of these houses because of the South node Jupiter conjunction. We've already talked about the 12th house, 
But again, Plath has Saturn there, the planet that often represents the father. So we have a huge critical loss of the father in the house of trauma and a loss of mental health, which is also 12th house area of concern. Then we have loss in the ninth house. And for Plath, that's where her moon is located. And the moon rules the emotions. So we have critical emotional losses. And let me pause here for just one minute. I'm so enamored with the idea of moon in the ninth house. And I see a couple things for Plath here. The ninth house represents overseas international interactions, which obviously points to Ted Hughes because she met him, you know, overseas in mm. uh, London, London, were they in London? UK, Cambridge, they've been yeah. in Cambridge. Okay, Cambridge. So they met, they met overseas. It was a deeply, you know, emotional relationship that she had with him, of course. And there was a massive loss connected to Ted Hughes when he cheated on her all the time. <laughs> I was going to say, which time? Which time? But the other piece of this placement that's so fascinating to me is that often whatever lives in our ninth house is what we will tell the world about, right? Or share in some way in this intercontinental way. Maybe we don't tell the world, but like maybe we get a contract um, with an international company or whatever. But for Plath, because when you think about the ninth house as expansive, it reaches out across the world and Plath has her moon here, the emotional landscape. So what Plath told the world about was her emotional landscape, specifically the losses she experienced emotionally, because again, the ninth house is ruled by Jupiter and Jupiter is in loss mode because of its conjunction to the South node. And then we have loss in the eighth house as well, because that's where Jupiter actually is in her chart. And that's the house of death and rebirth. So we have loss around death and rebirth, which is interesting because Plath literally writes about being brought back from the dead, right? That death and rebirth. Lady Lazarus. Yeah. Right. Of her unsuccessful suicide attempts. So we have the energy of critical loss because of the South node Jupiter conjunction. That conjunction is then also conjunct Venus by seven degrees. So it's pretty wide, but still conjunct. So now we're talking about critical losses in love and relationships, which clearly points to her relationship with Ted Hughes. It goes without saying the loss of that love was de devastating for Plath, but we're also looking at Venus as the creator. Venus oversees creativity. So this is creating a powerful connection between Plath's creativity, Venus, and her sense of loss, as if those losses fuel her creativity, which I think when we think about what propelled her to write, there was always this sense of loss that acted as a sort of engine underneath much of her work, or as she called it, the blood jet. Oh, I know, which is perfect. Yeah, which is so perfect. Like everything she said was perfect. Mm-hmm. On the other side, we have the South Node Jupiter conjunction conjunct to Neptune. A couple things here. Neptune co-rules the 12th house, like we talked about. So we're looking at critical losses around death, trauma, and secrets, which is another aspect of the 12th house, secrets, which feels very Ted Hughesy. But also we talked about some of what can happen with South Node conjunct Neptune when we covered Candy Montgomery's astrology last time. There's this super powerful imagination that leads us down the wrong path, right? This sort of like um, being taken over by, a, by a, an image or, a, or, or 
a vision that leads us the wrong way. And it's this way of getting swept up in our trauma. And as a result, we make the wrong decisions. And because we're in the eighth house of death and rebirth, I think this is where we see this relationship between her love affair with writing about suicide and how this incredible imagination that she had. And I mean, like one of my favorite, maybe, maybe my absolute favorite Plath poem is called cut. Do you know that poem? Uh, Yeah. And the whole thing is this fucking mesmerizing narration of what this cut on her thumb is and her, and the way that her, her, Imagination works through this poem and, and the vision that she communicates. It's just unbelievable. I'm, I'm going to read the last two stanzas of that poem. She's describing the cut that's she's cut her finger, right? And it's wrapped in a bandage and she's describing it. And she says, the stain on your gauze Ku Klux Klan babushka darkens and tarnishes. And when the bald pulp of your heart, bald, B-A-L-L-E-D, the bald pulp of your heart confronts its small mill of silence, how you jump, trepanned veteran, dirty girl, thumb stump. I mean, Jesus. I I remember reading that and feeling that part of that had to like, I wondered if she was staring about staring at that thinking about her father mm-hmm. and his um gangrenous leg removal mm. and the the stump mm. you know right being left and you know the the whole thing i i mean she wrote about her dad as if he was a, a at least a nazi sympathizer which from all all records show that he wasn't but the whole ku klux klan the whole all of that in there i was like ooh, ooh. right well it's like you literally just accidentally cut yourself you know, while you were cutting onions. And now we're talking about the Ku Klux Klan. We're talking about trepanned veteran, dirty girl. Like when the bald pulp of your heart confronts its small mill of silence. Are you fucking kidding me? Her imagination was otherworldly, but it was also the way her imagination led her astray, right? This romanticizing of the darkness and of death and of suicide. That's the other piece of this Neptune conjunction in the eighth house, the way that her imagination leads her to her own loss and demise. Yeah. Okay. We've talked about almost every placement that matters except for one. And I save this one because it's the top of not one, but two very important configurations that Platt has in her chart. That's right. It is the focal point of two different configurations. Like, do you hear what I'm saying? It's the top point <laughs> in both. Got of them. it. Okay. Was it the top? Are you sure? Of both. Okay. Not one, okay. but two. Okay. Dose. I, like, I'm sorry, but I've never seen that in a chart. Oh, all right. So she had and one of these configurations is just like a big fucking deal. I mean, they both are, but Okay, so let's go through it. She has a sailboat, which is something we've talked about before recently. I was going to say, I feel like I've heard that one. Yeah, we've talked about it. We've talked about both of these. We haven't talked about two of them with the same point as the tip for both of them. Okay, it's created by an opposition, the sailboat. Okay, so imagine that opposition, right? An opposition is a straight line made by two planets or placements that are about 180 degrees apart from each other. 
60 degrees from one of those planets is another planet. 60 degrees from that planet is another planet. And then that planet is 60 degrees from the other planet in the opposition, right? Okay, so this creates what looks like a little boat. But in the sailboat, there's a fifth point. And that point creates the sail. It's square to the opposition. So it looks like a little triangle on top of the boat. In Plas's case, this fifth point, the sail of her boat, is Uranus in Aries in the third house. In this configuration, the fifth point represents the goal that wants to be expressed on a collective level in this person's lifetime. It denotes an intense concentration on the chart holder's part in order to see the success of the goal come to fruition, but it can also point to a radical life change. And that radical life change is even more the case for Plath because this top point in the sailboat, Uranus and Aries in the third house, is also the crucial top point in the other configuration in her chart, which is the Yod. Oh, she has a Yod. She has a dead on motherfucking Yod. The Yod is also called the finger of God. I was going to say, I think that one's the finger of God, isn't it? We talked about that with the Menendez brothers. Yes, that's right. The finger of fate. So a Yod looks like a, a long, thin triangle. It happened. Yes. Lyle Menendez had it. Yeah. It happens when you have a central point, right? This is our central point and two other points that are each 150 degrees away from it, AKA quincunx to it on either side of it. Okay. The yod is karmic. So whereas you can kind of guide the course of much of your life through the choices you make when a yod is present, fate is absolutely at play. You cannot outrun the yod and you cannot out maneuver it in any way you will have to make a crucial decision related to this astrological point no matter what in the case of the sailboat all of the points in the boat itself are supporting this fifth point and aiding in the success and expression of that point so let's look at the other points in the sailboat we have the opposition between saturn in the 12th house and pluto in the sixth house Saturn is sextile to Mercury in Scorpio in the 10th house. Mercury is then sextile to Venus in the 8th house. And Venus is exactly sextile to Pluto in the 6th house. So we have the loss of the father and the sense of discipline around trauma. That's Saturn in the 12th house. An obsession with writing that becomes this person's legacy. That's Mercury in the 10th house. Uh, That obsession can also be around death because we're in Scorpio. Then we have the creativity of Venus and the way that that creativity zeroes in on loss and death. And we also have the very painful um, loss of a love of a relationship. That's Venus in the eighth house and the work that she is obsessive about and and that looks at the underworld and death. That's Pluto in the sixth house. All of those things are working together to see the expression of Uranus in Aries in the third house. And what does that represent? Well, the most obvious thing is that Uranus rules Aquarius, which is an air sign, and all the air signs rule the intellect. Uranus, more than any other planetary ruler of an air sign, represents genius. And the reason for that is because Aquarius thinks outside of the box. 
genius isn't just having good, smart ideas. It's having ideas that no one has seen before, right? Uranus rules invention, creating something that can't be traced back to any blueprint. So in other words, we have genius energy in the third house, which is the house of communication, language, publishing. So in other words, genius with words. That's what the boat wanted her to express in this lifetime and experience great success around in such a way that it's shared on the collective level, not just within herself or her immediate community, right? That's one huge piece here, but there's another piece. And we see that come through with the yod. Uranus is the planet of shocks and unstable behavior. That's usually how we see it expressed on this podcast, because we're talking about murderers. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yes. In Plas case, Uranus in Aries in the third house is the tip of the yod. And it is quincunx, Mercury in Scorpio in the 10th house, and Venus in Virgo in the eighth house, which is being influenced by Jupiter conjunct the south node. Mercury oversees writing, but it also oversees our minds, what we think about. When you have Mercury in Scorpio, you're going to struggle with obsessing over things. Also, because Scorpio rules death, this obsession could be about dying. Then we have Venus in the eighth house of death and rebirth, which represents in part the death of a love relationship. We've talked about it. So we have an obsessive mind, maybe obsessing over death and the anguish of love, of love lost. Those two things are pushing their energies together into the tip of the yacht. And they're sort of aggravating it because a quincunx is 150 degrees. It's not a friendly aspect. It's, um, it's painful, right? It's, it's uncomfortable. So they're pushing these painful, uncomfortable energies into the tip of the yacht where we have a very unstable Uranus in Aries. Aries is the sign that rules violence and the physical body, right? And here is where Plath was forced to make a fated decision. And that is going well, I mean, yeah, that's the astrology of Sylvia Plath. It's so hard that it's so like, I mean, I don't think that we've discussed this before. Nothing's faded, you know, like there's yeah, except the yod, except that fucking yod, <laughs> that, fucking yod um, is faded. that yod, is, you know, but like, uh, I just, and you wonder about like how that would have played out if she'd found Richard Sassoon, you know, or if Ted Hughes had put his dick somewhere else that God, night, you know, it. like, you know, the other thing is that's interesting is with her Mars and Leo, she was gonna so mars rules lust and uh physical attraction and all that kind of thing and you know it's just not shocking to me at all that she went after a leo you know i don't think that i can personally attest to how attractive they are (laughs) oh and as a like as i told remy today as we were going over ted hughes chart my husband shares an uncomfortable amount. <laughs> yeah, what? Uh, placements with him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and a little weird. And you know, the other thing is, 
she has Mars in Leo in the seventh house, which is the house of marriage. So she has Leo in the house of marriage. So in the Leo in the house of marriage, she really was destined. I she mean, could not run that. And, you know, and I think about it, too, because we didn't we don't have time. I would love to, to dig into Ted Hughes chart and I would love to look at Ossia Wevel's chart. Oh, my because God. That shit. I mean, I didn't go into half of what I I didn't go into. A, a, there's and there's not as much written about her because, as I said, he went out of his way to erase her from his life. I think that he was like, this is more than I'm going to be able to come back from, you know, yeah. two women gassing themselves for me. The second one with a child. Mm, no one's going to like me after this. Uh, and he was correct. Yeah, he was right um, about that. He was right about that. But um, her. Like she was, she made some real interesting decisions after Plath died. Uh, someone said to her in the days following her passing, you know, this has got to be really hard for you. And she said, why? It doesn't <gasps> have anything to do with me. What? Yeah. yeah. You know, I, um, David Wevel was such a kind man. I mean, I know it was so many years after that whole thing, but he was so kind and he had this air of, and he was, and he was a wonderful, he ran a, a lovely workshop. Some, some fucking assholes out there. They just run the worst workshops where it's, it's, oh, it's yeah. so antagonistic and mean. And he was so lovely and kind and supportive, but there was just this, this like defeat in him. There he was, was so in love with her. He would have like, from what I understand, he was like, I will take you back anytime. No questions asked. He wanted to claim fatherhood. You know, he wanted to claim sure as his own. And she was like, I don't think she's yours. You know, like she told her friend, she didn't know, but she wrote Ted Hughes name on in the birth certificate. But Ted Hughes was like, you don't know that, you know, like what just, a dick he was, honestly, he truly Truly. And I and I hope for his sake, as well as that of the woman he ended up with for almost 30 years, that he grew and learned from these mistakes, you know, and became a better version of the whore that he was. But, um, yeah, she was uh, she was decided she was I mean, like I said, his parents described her as arrogant. And it turns out that was that was fairly accurate, you know, like she was. I mean, she was gorgeous. She was stunning and she knew it. And she talked a lot about that. And when she cheated on, you know, how you talked about how like, weren't, wasn't this in the Wevels house when he showed up? It sure was. And after she cheated on him, she told him about it, like told him about it. Ugh. Like this is how he was in bed. Kind of told him about it. Uh, yeah. What? Yeah. Wait, how like, do you know she that? Had, it, there's reports that her, that her friends were like, this is how this went down i like mean she's like next level narcissist she yeah and that came you know like she there well i mean ted hughes wrote a poem about it about how which is interesting because when i read it i was like he wrote about Ossia wevel and of course he never mentioned her by name but about how she met plath and she was like plath had so much and you had so little so you took a little and then you took a little more you know and then you took it all and then you realized that you took too much and i was like you kind of make it sound like you were just there, you know, like you were just like, like you didn't play a fucking role. <laughs> like this just kind of happened. And you were like, Oh, I just, I guess I got taken. That's not how that works. Yeah. <laughs> like, you were there. Yeah. You had agency and you have accountability, like, you know, and it's uh, I mean, that whole story, it's, it's so frustrating and it happened at a different time. What a nightmare. Um, but I, yeah, what a fucking nightmare. And I just want to say, 
Plath, the Sylvia Plath's work, it was like the first time I read it, it was like it gave voice to something inside me, something chaotic and um, yeah. dreadful inside me that I, 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 I never, I, I couldn't put words to the way that she did it. It was like, it was somehow the way that she, the, the genius of Plath was that she applied rules to chaos. She manipulated language in such a thoughtful way. Like she had to work within a system, but she was applying these rules to absolute fucking chaos, the chaos of her heartbreak and of her mental illness. And I definitely didn't appreciate it until I was heartbroken. I mean, I would, I loved tulips. That was one of my favorite pieces of hers. I would read it over and over and over again. And I didn't understand why I loved it Mm. uh, the way I did until I got really ill. Mm. And then it made more sense to me why I liked it, you know, and I, and I went back because of course I did like going through some of her poetry after doing this research and like reading things now and being like, Oh, that's about that. Mm. (laughs) Oh, that's what that's about. You know, Mm. um, if you haven't read Sylvia Plath, if you are a woman and you haven't read Sylvia Plath, go get Ariel. I strongly recommend you do that. Uh, it's you can look it up online. Like you don't even have to pay for anything yeah. if you don't want to. If you have a phone right now, whatever you're listening to this on, odds are you can use it to look up pieces from Ariel. Yeah. Uh, and it's 100% worth your time. Um, Lady Lazarus. Oh, oh, oh. You yeah. Know. Lady Lazarus, one of those ones I had to like put down and come back to. I'll also say that because of the patriarchy and because of um, the, the misogyny that we swim in every day, mm, I a bath in it. I don't know what your ex- experience was, but my experience was if you said that Plath was your favorite poet. Oh, God. Of course she is. Right, you're immediately scoffed. Feminazi. Yeah. Or, or just like, OK, goth girl, like. Mm. It, no, for me, it was like an eye roll. It was like, oh, do you know any other poets? Or right. are you just saying that because like, she's so famous. And then there were also like, I can't tell you the number of dudes I met, not so much in grad school, because no one was at least stupid enough to voice that, but an undergrad who were like, she's just really overrated. And I was like, oh, you should stop saying words with your mouth. So yeah, I think that it's, it's just so many, so many men gloss over her work because it's it comes from such a fiercely feminine space and it's so unapologetic about taking up um a feminine taking a feminine perspective and that's the ingrained misogyny in so many well yeah and also like she's not talking about landscapes right she's like i'm not going to describe a winter's night we're going to talk about my dad Right. And then we're going to discuss yeah. my ex-husband. Right. It's like, it's like, hello, my emotional landscape will, will take up all of the space, which of yeah. course makes a lot of men really uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. Yep. <laughs> we both knew that one. So y'all can fuck off. We're reading Plath forever. Yep. That's what's happening. That's what's happening, kids. And I'll, and I will say it to my dying day, her fucking leaving that manuscript for him and being like, okay, bye. Like the gangsterist of gangster moves like, okay, well, I guess since you didn't want to do it with me, you're just going to have to do it in my shadow. Also enjoy being a parent since you were apparently not into it before. Not that I am in any way endorse suicide, but as a parent who has through no fault of my husband's own ended up having to parent solo for a long period of time, 
I can't even tell you just like, okay, you're just going to walk around fucking women. You think you're just going to, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to do. Hey, guess what? You're not going to be doing that. You're going to leave me alone to uh, change diapers and fucking mm. have wipe noses and kids at my to crying babies while I'm trying to be a creative. Yeah. No, 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 not doing that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and like, and she probably knew that he'd find a nanny or some friends or whatever she finds. She knew he'd found somebody to, to do the work that he wasn't ever going to do. But she also knew that he was going to be doing that in her shadow for the rest of his natural born life. Yeah. And I just, you know, I mean, I wish she, she lived to see it. <laughs> I mean, she was looking down, unfortunately. And here's the thing. Unfortunately, there's no pettiness on the other side. I don't think, I think it's yeah. just like, everyone feels like we can hope the universal love, <laughs> but, but I, I bet God high fived her. God was like, well, you know, like I, I you could have stuck around, I, you know, I, the world needed you, but I get it. Like, can't the angels like do us one solid and just give us a, a couple years of petty before we have to just honestly like, go to the light? If anyone deserved it, it was Plath in that moment Jesus is what Christ. I'm saying. She, I yeah. mean, in her in her death, she was genius. <laughs> like, I, I just can't imagine. It's just also wild to me that her genius was just so prominent in her chart. It was the tip of two massive configurations she was undisputably a genius yeah no agreed um on a separate note we're okay do you kind of want to do jeff warren next week where i mean warren jeffs warren jeffs i would i would be happy to do that because i'm watching uh keep sweet on hulu which is all about how that shit unraveled because i watched i forget what it's called now but i watched a documentary on peacock about him and and it was narrated by one of his wives who he later excommunicated because she found out that he molested his sister when they were growing up. Gross. Yeah. But also, yes, I believe it. Oh, so Jude sniffing into my, Oh, hi buddy. Yeah, hi, Jude. Quiet for a minute. Well, I'm almost done buddy. And then I'll come wipe your butt because that's what parents do. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, on he that wants note. everyone to know that he's too old for butt wiping. Okay. Yeah. We acknowledge that Jude. <laughs> we acknowledge that. That's I love okay. you, Jude. I miss you. But yes, I'm totally fine with doing Warren Jeffs next week. Let's talk about that piece of shit. I don't even have to like with Ted Hughes. I'm like, Oh, I guess he was good at writing. I don't have to feel that way. But Warren Jeffs, fuck that guy. Fuck that Let's guy. Let's hope he burns in hell. From prison. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. I love you. I love you too. Okay. Bye. Bye.